Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. I want to welcome each one of you. Thank you so much for taking some time and making it a priority to be here together. We just love that we're all here together and we can worship God as we've done already and remember uh, our Savior and what He's done for us. And when we look into His Word, then we can learn from Him as well. So, and welcome to those who are watching online, wherever you're watching, whether it's locally or somewhere else. We are really appreciating that you are spending the time with us this morning. This is our last Sunday in our messy series. And this, is a, this uh, topic for this Sunday is messy marriages. So they said, Glenn, you take this one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure how to take that, but that's what, that's what they did. So we're talking about messy marriages. And in the previous number of weeks, I've contacted, uh, I got people in our office, and I contacted a number of our small groups, uh, leaders, and got them to kind of pass out a little bit of a survey. And I took a, a small survey uh, of our church about different questions about marriage. And we're going to look at a little bit of that throughout our morning together. One of the things that I asked was, what's the number one quality in the best marriage that you've seen? The, num- the best marriage that you know, what's their number one quality? And I found it very interesting that the number one response to that was respect. Respect. Many people, more people than anybody, uh, anything else said that respect, loyalty, mutual respect, love and respect, uh, treat the couple, treat each other with respect. More people said that than anything else. I found that very, very interesting. They said other things like staying connected, like kindness and communication and all of those things. But when it comes to marriage, we go into marriage with, I would say, good intentions, with an idea of a bright future. We go into marriage with expectations. But these expectations often set us up for disappointment. And I don't know if you know that kind of thing, if you've experienced that on your own or in your own relationships. But that's what I've found. We have expectations and then when they're not met, we find that we are disappointed or frustrated or we have other kinds of difficulties. We go into our marriages with maybe naive expectations. And we might, we might think that all we need is our love for each other. And our love will just conquer everything and it will just go nice and smooth. Or we have this idea that maybe our spouse will meet every single one of our needs. Every need that we may have for the rest of our life, we, will, we know, we go into it maybe thinking naively that, our spouse will meet every single one of those needs. And really the only possible outcome with these kind of naive expectations is maybe confusion or disappointment. But I found that we work hard on our wedding. You know, we work hard on the wedding day. So if you've got a wedding coming up, you know how much work there is. If you've had a wedding recently, wedding in your family, or you remember back to your wedding maybe, you remember how much work you put into it, how much thought and how much prayer and how much money and how much discussion you put into that one wedding day. And it seems as though we put so much time and effort into that that we maybe just assume that if we get a perfect start, then everything else will smoothly follow along. If we just have a perfect, smart, a perfect start to our, to our marriage, we work so hard on that wedding, but we sometimes forget to work on our marriage. One thing I asked in our, in our survey for Temple, one thing that married people should know, and they said the number one overwhelming, like three to one, four to one, was work. Some form of work. They said things like, the road isn't easy. It's not a fairy tale. It's hard work. You're in the fight of your life. Marriage takes work. It's hard work, but totally worth it. 
relationships are work. You have to work together. So you get, there's a bit of a theme there, right? And all these different ideas of, the, of, of working. And as he said that marriage, the answer to that question, the question was, what should married, pe- married people know? Married people need to know that your relationship requires your attention. Your relationship takes work. It doesn't mean that work is bad. It just needs our attention. Often, when our marriage isn't going the way we thought it would go or our dreams kind of fade a little bit and we start to ask ourselves questions about hope, what's happened to our hopes for our marriage or were we really meant to be together or we ask questions of maybe have we fallen out of love. Uh, One lady sent me a, a, a little saying about marriage and said, she said that marriage is like a deck of cards. So at the very beginning, all you need are two hearts and a diamond. Isn't that nice? But in the end, all you wish you had was a club and a spade. So we're going into counseling together, all of us, that couple, and we'll, we'll kind of work through a few things. But I find that's true. It's nice to be able to laugh about those kind of things, but there's at least a recognition that there can be messes in our marriages. There can be difficulties that we face. Things can come up that are unexpected. And we end up asking questions when we get into a messy situation. Like, is our love over? Or we start asking the questions, I thought Christians were supposed to have perfect relationships. I didn't think they were supposed to have any problems. Is everyone else as perfect as they seem? Are we the only ones that are struggling? Is love even possible? And where is God in all of this mess? You know, sometimes we get tired and confused, maybe overwhelmed, and I don't know where you are, but we ask these questions. Where are we supposed to go to share these difficulties and the disintegrating fairy tale that we have? Are we disappointing God and everybody else? You know, the church, the people in the church, us, we have a tendency to, like we get up on a Sunday morning, we think, we don't go and say, what's the worst set of clothes that I have that haven't been washed in a while and go out to the garage and find a pile and put something on, right? We kind of get dressed up a little bit, right? We make sure we're clean, look good, smell good, all that kind of thing. And sometimes we look at each other and we think they're perfect. You guys have it all together. And then we look at our own relationships and we say, we've got some struggles and I feel like I'm the only one. Some of these, this tendency to um, hide any problems that we may have can really isolate each other and lead to that feeling of being alone. You know, we might, I don't know what your Sunday morning is like, but I've heard some, some families are like this. When you wake up in the morning, it seems like, because all of you seem like you have it all together. So I imagine that in every one of your households, you wake up in the morning slightly before the alarm, just kind of come to consciousness, pray a little bit, then get out of bed and you find that your children have already gotten up and gotten dressed. <laughs> and they've got breakfast made for you and it's exactly what you want. The eggs are done the way you like them. And then you kind of all get together and you sing a little bit at the breakfast table. And then you sort of get all things together, put together. You head out to the car. You're like five, ten minutes early. And you're just waiting for each other. And you get there and there's, you just leisurely enjoy a conversation in the family, in the car, as you get to church and you get out of church. And as you open the door, butterflies fall out and, and things are, like it's just a perfect situation, right? We do have a tendency to look at each other that way. You know, they're smiling there, but maybe it goes a little bit differently for you. Maybe it kind of, the alarm wakes you up and you think, I hate Sundays, and you're the pastor, right? That's not good. (laughs) 
But you have to get up early, you have to get up anyway, and then you go and you get ready, and nobody seems to be on the same page, and you're sort of fighting about what we're doing, and the, how, who gets what, and you say, I'll take my own car, and you get there on your own, and, and you get there, and you finally come together, and you meet each other somewhere in the lobby, and you start to smile, right? And you say hi to everybody, and it's like when mom used to answer the phone when she was in the middle of yelling at you. I don't know if you had that, like, right? You remember that when you were a kid? You're, uh, you're, she's just yelling at you because you did something terrible, right? And you, do, you know you deserve it, and she's telling you all the things that you did wrong, and all these things, and all of a sudden the phone rings, she goes, oh, hello. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Then she has a nice conversation with someone. Well, you have a wonderful day. And another thing, I wish that... And she goes right back into it. I realized later that, you know, she's not married. She's not mad at the person on the phone. She's mad at me, right? Because I did something wrong. Uh, and we sort of feel like maybe that's what it's like in, in some of our families. We finally get here and it's a struggle to get here. We sort of try to make it look like we're getting along okay and maybe even hold hands and something like that. And, and then when it's about to time to everybody sort of is leaving, you turn to your spouse or your kids and you say, get in the car, just get out of here, right? And sometimes it's like that, right? Sometimes we have this idea that we need to present ourselves as perfect, as though we've got it all together, as though we don't have any struggles, and the problem with that, first, it's a little insincere, and secondly, it's, it's uh, demoralizing to, to, to the rest of us. When we see all of you with no struggles, we have a difficulty with ourselves. I asked a question about the best marriage advice you ever received from, uh, from anyone. And the number one response was about commitment, about never giving up, saying that you're, you're one now, you're a unit, you're, you have to stay together, you have to acknowledge each other, you need to respect and you need to reconcile, all of that kind of thing. The second one was about communicating and talking. Best marriage advice were those. You know what things are not there? Especially in that first question when I asked, what's the number one quality of, your, of, a, of the marriage that you've seen that you think is the best marriage that you know, the number one quality? You know what's missing from all of that list? It's like hotness or, you know, uh, attractiveness or those kinds of things, that superficial stuff that maybe gets a relationship started, but it goes, it's supposed to go so much deeper than that. And then we sometimes get bad advice. So I asked, what are the worst marriage advice that you've ever received? And the first set of answers, the one kind of the group that I grouped together really was about personal fulfillment or happiness or your own rights, the idea of you're in marriage, you should be happy in your marriage, and you should pursue your own happiness, and you have your rights, and all of those kinds of things were listed as, uh, they considered that as bad advice. The second part of the bad advice answers that we got was about change. Like, uh, the bad advice was, don't worry what he or she is like now, you can change them after you get married. So I thought, rather than looking at messy marriages, and we've got messy marriages that are listed in the Bible, we can learn from those as well. I thought, why don't we go right to the beginning and see how God made marriage? What was it supposed to be like in the first place? How was it created? So if you have a Bible with you, or you have a device that you can read, find the Bible. First chapter of the, of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at that briefly, and then we're going to settle a little bit more into chapter 2 in a specific verse, verse 18. But as we look at this, remember, this is the idea of what God has done. We think of marriage in our culture as something different than what God created. Sometimes we think of marriage as just a convenience. Or uh, some people say, well, it's cheaper for two people to live together than it is for two people to live apart, so why don't we just get married? Or they just think of marriage as a piece of paper. And it doesn't really signify anything. Well, I think we need to understand really what God intended marriage to be and how he created it. But when he talks about creation in chapter 1, just we're going to look at a couple of different verses. You see that in verse 4 of chapter 1, 
First, when God creates, first thing he creates is light. He creates light, and at the end of the verse it says, and he saw and he declared that it was good. Down to verse 10, he creates the dry land, and he creates the seas, and at the end of that verse, verse 10, he says that it's good. Verse 12, he creates all the vegetation, and he sees that that's good. Verse 18, he creates the stars and everything that's in the heavens, and he sees that that's good. Verse 21, he creates the sea creatures and the birds, and he said, and he saw that it was good. Verse 25, he made the land animals, and he saw that it was good. Verse 31, he saw all that he had made, and he declared that it was very good. That's just an overview of creation, how he created everything. So chapter 2 kind of steps back a little bit to the part where he created mankind. And, it wants to, and the writer of the chapter is zooming in on what, happens when cre- what happened when crea- uh, human, humanity was created. We get a little bit more detail. And here is the first time in verse 18 of chapter 2 that God says it isn't good. All of the other things in chapter 1, he says it is good, this is good, that's good, everything that I've created. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. He didn't say, let's just make it clear, he didn't say that man is not good, right? His creation, he's not saying that he didn't, the man's not good, but he's saying it's not good for the man to be alone. And then he goes on to say, I will make a helper suitable for him, is what the version, those two words, helper and suitable. I think we can, we can look a little bit at those words. The idea is not as meaningful or as worthless as some people think those words are. Sometimes people think that as they read this chapter, they think, well, man was created and then woman was like the helper or woman was kind of made to be suitable for the man. But those are the English terms. But there's a concept that's there that we don't really catch in our English translation. The idea of helper is one, is the concept that there is something that's vital that's missing, something that's crucial that's not there. In fact, that word help or helper is used of God many times throughout the Psalms and in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 30, it says, Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me, Lord. Be my help. Right? It doesn't mean like less important little thing that I don't kind of... It's like be the crucial thing that I'm missing, the thing that I need. Be my help. In Psalm 54, it says, Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. That's the idea of, of that word that's there. There's something that's crucial, that's missing, that God says for Adam, that that's missing, and he knows that it needs to be there. So God had all the creation sort of pass before Adam, and he saw that there were two of everything. There was a corresponding male, what we call male and female. He saw that there there were, one was made for the other. And it seemed, and then he looked at himself and he said that there was no one that was suitable for him. No one that was kind of, not the opposite, but something that was made for him. And that's what that term suitable means. It doesn't mean that it's acceptable. It means that is corresponding to him. And so Matthew Henry wrote, The woman was made of a rib of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. If a man is the head, she is the crown, a crown to her husband, the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined. So as God made marriage, it was the 
harmonious blending of two lives in a pristine relationship that brought joy and fulfillment to both. That's what God created. That's what God intended. I asked in our survey what one thing that married people need to know. What should married people need to know? And it was very similar to the idea of work. Some said that it wasn't easy. It's not a fairy tale. It makes work. It's worth it. They have to work together. All of those things. We see when God created marriage, He created it in a specific way. And if you have that chapter 2 of Genesis there in front of you, if you want to look down to verse 24 and 25, let's read those together. God said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be called one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There's four basic main elements that God says are supposed to be present in marriage. First, it says a man should leave his father and mother. And by implication, it's that a woman should leave her father and mother. So the idea is separation. Um, the, the term is often translated abandon. But it doesn't mean that the impression here is not that we're supposed to abandon our parents. But we need to recognize that we need to focus on the new family that we're creating. A husband and wife, as they get married, they create a new family. And so they are supposed to leave, separate themselves from the old family and because they're creating a new one. And it doesn't mean to abandon in the sense of never think of or do anything for, but the idea carries the, uh, the, the, the word carries the idea of really primary allegiance. Your primary allegiance is supposed to be to your house, to your spouse, to your house to your spouse. Um, the man and the woman are supposed to switch their primary allegiance from the family where they grew up to, to the spouse that they now have. And the second thing is that the, this concept that has is the idea of dependence. So the man and the woman, they no longer look to mom and dad for support. They no, look, no longer look to mom and dad to have their needs met. Instead, they look to each other. It doesn't mean that mom and dad can't help when and where they choose to, but it means that the wife and the husband don't expect it. The husband and the wife need to make sure that they are depending on each other. The third thing there is that uh, the idea of durability. It says, and be joined to his wife. The idea of lastingness, the idea of uh, being put together. The man and the woman are supposed to commit themselves to each other. The idea of we saw leaving and then it says to be joined. The idea of being joined is like glue. That's really a great concept. But not the like, elementary school glue that I remember having that uh, you would put a whole bunch on and then you get a piece of paper and you stick the other piece of paper to it and it would just keep slipping around. It wasn't really, it didn't really, like, you pull it apart three weeks later, still hasn't dried. You know, that kind of stuff. Not that kind of glue, but real glue. The kind of glue they let you use if you're an adult. Like the super glue. Remember when super glue came out and everybody had to go to the, a lot of people went to emergency rooms because they stuck their fingers together or they accidentally touched this and touched that and, you know, they're not used to working with real glue. Like we're just used to this stuff that keeps sliding around. Um, th this idea of glue means the permanent, like we can't get it off anymore. These two things are joined together. And if you have to try to separate them, they don't even separate in the part where you've glued them. They separate somewhere else. That's what it means there, where there's a lastingness, there's a connecting, there's a being joined together. 
It's the same idea, it's the same word that's used about Ruth when she talks to Naomi. When they both have been widowed, and Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. She says, I'm going to, your people are going to be my people. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God will be my God. That's the idea that we're going to be together. That's the concept that's there. It's about devotion in the sense of two emotionally healthy, strong people choosing to stick together no matter what happens. It's the idea that Jesus added to this in Mark chapter 10 when he talked about marriage. He says, what God has joined together, don't let any man separate, let no man separate. There's that idea of permanence, being stuck together. Then the third one is it says, and they shall become one flesh. That's the idea of unity or harmony or agreement. It doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that the man and the woman have to be the same. But they need to be on the same page. It's the idea of uniformity uh, in terms of purpose, in terms of direction, in terms of mutual support. That's where we need to be together. We need to be unified. The wife isn't the husband and the husband isn't the wife. There is a complex unity that's there. It's stressing unity while recognizing that there's diversity within that oneness. You're allowed to be different, but you can still be unified. You can still be together. It's diversity brought into harmony. So this one, I think, gets twisted around by people sometimes. A husband or a wife will try to use it as a control mechanism. Well, we're supposed to be united, which means you should do what I say. We're supposed to be on the same page, and here's the page, right? That's not what it means here. It means to recognize that your spouse has different abilities, has been gifted by God to do different things, and they should be free, and you should encourage them to develop all that they have and what the God has been able, what God has given them to do. But still, you are together. Still, you are united. Too many people twist that one up. And the last one is about intimacy. It says, and the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The idea of closeness and intimacy. This one gets messed up as well. But if you think about it, neither person, as we read about Adam and Eve, neither of them thought about covering themselves. They weren't self-conscious. They didn't have any shame. They didn't seem to have any fear about ridicule. They had no hang-ups, no embarrassments. Because they were the first couple, they had no emotional hurts from former abuse or from earlier bad choices, whatever it might be. This was the way that God had intended it to be. There's supposed to be free intimacy in all areas, in every area of our life. And we hear the word intimacy. In fact, I thought about not using that word because so many times we hear the word intimacy and we think about sex. And we think that's what intimacy is. And that's not what it's supposed to be. Sex comes as a result of intimacy. But too many times people try to say, try to replace intimacy with simply sex. And eventually that's all that they have. I think, but that word intimacy sometimes makes people uncomfortable. I know with the clothing drive, we have different sections for men's clothes and women's clothes and kids' clothes, boys and girls and all that stuff. And then there's a section over there. And sometimes when we kind of get ready for the clothing drive, we fold clothes together and we, we put them all together. And I try to stay where the men's section is. The first time I was here, I didn't know all of that. I just started wandering around. I, and there, there's a label up on the wall for every part. And I was at this table and I looked up and it said, Women's Intimates. So I thought, hmm, 
I'm just going to walk this way. <laughs> and I went over to the men's section, and it said men's intimates. And I thought, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I didn't know we had intimates for men. So I walked away from that section and just folded kids' clothes for a while. <laughs> just till I started feeling a little bit better. But there's that... There's that idea, we think of intimacy as a word that makes us uncomfortable, but really the intimacy is the idea of closeness. We're supposed to be able to be close to each other. That means we can drop our fear. We drop our self-consciousness. We drop maybe the pride and the selfishness that we might sometimes live with and battle against. And we're willing to allow our spouse to see us for who we really are. That's intimacy. And God says that that's what is supposed to be present in our marriages. The idea is, and I think all of this, we need to understand that marriage isn't just a contract. It's not just a, a social agreement that everybody recognizes. But the concept of marriage is a covenant that two people make with each other before God himself and other witnesses. That's what a wedding is supposed to be. That's what a marriage is supposed to be. And this commitment, if you look, and if you have time this afternoon, I would recommend you look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 eventually starts talking about families, like husbands and wives. But it starts off with saying in the chapter, verse 1, it says that you need to live a life of love. Be imitators of God and live a life of love. And it goes on to tell us what a life of love looks like. And then down later in those uh, later verses, it talks about a husband and a wife. And you know what? The, there's something interesting about marriage. Our marriage isn't just a marriage. It's supposed to be a picture. It's supposed to be a symbol of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And sometimes people think, I don't know, I don't even know what that means. But if you read that in Ephesians 5, look at it a little bit, and you realize God says to the husband that you're supposed to love your wife like Jesus Christ loved the church. Well, how did Jesus love the church? Before the church was, before anybody believed in Jesus, before anybody repented of their sins, Jesus says, I love them. And I sacrifice myself. He came to earth to sacrifice himself for the sin of the whole world. God so loved, Donald said the last couple of weeks, God so loved the messy world that he sent his one and only son. Right? And his son came and he sacrificed himself because of his love for his people. And because of that love and because of that sacrifice, we can, through his forgiveness, have our relationship restored with God Almighty. Only because of what Jesus has done for us. That's what, and we get to be part of his family, part of his church as we follow him. But it's all because of what he has done. So that's the picture of what a husband is supposed to be like in a, in a marriage. Too many times we think husbands have the authority because in that chapter of Ephesians 5, it talks about the, uh, the husband being the head of the house. But, you know, some guys like that idea where the head of the house, you know, I'm just going to take a seat here. I'm the head of the house. And I think I want some iced tea. And what else? I think I know what we're going to do for vacation. I'm going to make all the decisions. Right? People think that that's what the head of the house is. It's not the head of the house. The head of the house is supposed to be the one who imitates the love of Jesus. 
And you know, Jesus took the first step in that relationship. He said, there's people that I've created to be in relationship with me. And there's nothing that they can do. There's nothing that we could have done to be in relationship with God. So Jesus says, because of his love for us, wanting to restore that relationship, he came and died for us. He took the first step. So I think, okay, if that's the way that Jesus loves the church, then what's it supposed to look like for me to love my wife? I need to love my wife in that way. But you know, we get conflict in our families. We get them all the time. And they often can be boiled down to pride, selfishness, those kinds of things that happen. Sometimes pettiness. You know how we sometimes get, a, uh, we get in a snowball of arguing where we argue about everything, and then you realize, I don't even know why we argued about that. I don't care. It doesn't really matter, but we argued about it anyway. Those are the things that we need to realize and put, us, put those aside. God wants us to live a life and live, have marriages that reflect Him so that when people look at you and your marriage, not the fake look like we see on Sunday morning, not that it's fake, I don't mean that, because we all have struggles, I know that. But in reality, when you get down to the core, when you're, maybe your neighbors know you a little bit or your friends know you, and they realize, hey, that, there's a couple that love God first, but give themselves to each other without reservation. And that's, that's the kind of picture that we're supposed to paint. That we're supposed to paint of our Savior, Jesus Christ.